You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. To this person, or why did, why did, um, yeah, I don't know, you can make up all kinds of stuff. You can even look in scripture and find instances, you know, why God did you do this with the people of Israel? I mean, there may be all kinds of questions that could come up. And so you may have that, uh, this is going to be my first question when I enter, enter heaven. You may not be there, but that, that's the idea. And so, and when we say something like that, we don't usually have something malicious in mind. It's more of a curiosity um, and, and a trying to understand what God has in that particular instance that we really kind of just want to know. We, we want to have some kind of insight. And so when we look at the, at the book of Malachi, if we look at Malachi's prophecy in, in here, it's the, the last book in the, in the Old Testament. And as we look at it, what we're going to see is we're going to see a dialogue of sorts. So you're going to have this dialogue and it's it's sort of a dialogue because what happens is is there is a question and then there's a rebuttal question that goes with it. And so as we look at that, um, we're going to understand some things about the lifestyle of those in Israel. And and it'll help us to understand just about their attitudes and where they're at. And so as we begin on this this little journey, this five-week series that we're going to do that will lead us right into Advent, um, what we're going to discover is we're going to discover what the condition of our heart is. And so we'll look at that and we'll ask this question. What is the condition of your heart? And so you can kind of put that down because that's really the question for the whole series that we're going to ask every single week. What is the condition of your heart? Now, you may say, man, what's staging? Um, last week, last, I guess it's been a little over a week ago on a Thursday night at 11 o'clock, it was after we did our small group meeting, and this has nothing to do with the small group leader meeting, Okay. But about 11 o'clock, I started feeling some pressure about right here and some pain and some numbness down the left arm. And so when you have that, you just kind of go, okay, that's fun. Um, and it just kind of lingered. Now, for those of you that don't know, that is not a normal thing for me. So, so when that was going on, I'm kind of questioning, and I hadn't shared it with Debbie. So we go to bed. About 1 o'clock, I'm still awake with this feeling, and I get up, and I take the aspirin that I'm supposed to take. And so I did that, and I chewed it, and it's the one with the, with the, um, the coating on the outside. And so it tastes awful. Just, just so you know, it is awful. I mean, worse than awful, awful. And, um, but I downed that and I said, well, I'm going to try and go to bed. So I went to sleep for a while, woke up the next morning, still had the pressure and the pain on this left side and the numbness down my arm. And so we decided that we would head off to the ER. So we spent Friday, the majority of Friday in the ER watching the History Channel. There were other options, but it was somewhat entertaining. Um, angels and aliens. So, um, so it was a little bit entertaining. Um, I didn't know some of that stuff, and, and honestly, I'm, I'm not sure I still want to know some of that. But we, we went, and we hung out there, and they took pictures. 
and, uh, and they took blood, and they checked blood, and then they checked blood again, and it basically said, we don't see anything, but we recommend that you relax for the rest of the weekend. And so what that really meant is I wasn't allowed to do anything. And so there was a question whether I could watch football, because that may you know, get you riled up, um, or, or whatever, but I wasn't supposed to do anything. So I did not come here. Now, the fact is, I wasn't going to be here anyways. Um, Jeremiah was scheduled to preach. Deb and I were supposed to go on a pastor staff or pastor spouse retreat over at the coast. Um, we were supposed to be there for some rest and relaxation, and it just meant that we were resting and relaxing away from a group of people instead of with a group of people. So we stayed home for the majority of the weekend. And so I'm thankful that Jeremiah was there to preach, and in God's timing, he was already set to do that. Um, I'm also thankful for. Uh, Pastor Isaiah and the work that he did along with volunteers for Friday night and all this stuff. I, I saw some pictures. I didn't see a lot of pictures, but I'm thankful that that went as planned and went well. So, so it was really good. But it, it was all about, you know, for, for Deb and I, our focus wasn't even here. And our focus wasn't at in, in the Friday night thing. Our fro- focus was really, um, what is this? that's going on. So I went on uh, Monday for some more pictures and a stress test. And so they, they put all the leads on and all that stuff. And they said, we're going to put you on this machine and we're going we're gonna to run you. Now, somebody had already told me that you will feel like you're dying. And I thought, well, that's encouraging. Um, so I'm having, having some heart pressure and, or some chest pressure. And, and so I'm going to feel like I'm dying. And so I, I I did that. I survived that. They took pictures. They said they didn't find anything. They don't know what it is, but they didn't find anything. And they said, just go back to normal. If something happens, come back and see us. So, so this is what I got out of it. They took pictures of my heart and didn't find anything, which takes me immediately to the Wizard of Oz. Um, but I've been said that, I've been told that about my brain too. So, um, but there are, there are parameters when you're having that, those things checked that you hope would indicate something. And they really didn't find anything wrong. They said, all the pieces are working like they're supposed to. We don't know what it was. We're assuming it was something to do with muscles. But then again, if you look at me, you go, muscles, really? Um, so, you know, a lot of, it was just one of those things where we don't know what's really going on, but it's okay. And, and really, it became a, um, a check of my heart. But at the same time, if you, if you take it and you just turn it just a little bit, we're always in the place where we need to check our heart. Maybe not physically, but we need to check our heart spiritually. Because it is so easy to drift away from what God has for us. It's so easy to move into unhealthy practices that cause us to miss out on what God wants to do in our life. And so when we look at the book of Malachi, we're going to ask that question, what is the condition of your heart? And so Malachi, prophet, his job essentially was to like all the rest of the prophets, was to do some foretelling, but it was also a call to the nation to repent. Whenever nation was receiving the prophecy, it was a call for them to repent, to turn back to God and follow him in obedience. And, um, and Malachi was no different. 
He was a prophet that likely didn't share with a lot of lightheartedness. Um, anytime a prophet shares, you know, there's, there's a burden that comes with sharing. And it doesn't come with this idea of, I'm just going to be funny and you'll get it. And so Malachi probably wasn't that guy stand, doing stand up on the corner as he's talking about what God is wanting to do with the people of Israel. And I would say, just as a side note, that there is a, a piece of this, a piece of that burden that, that pastors, as they share on Sunday morning, whether it be myself or Pastor Jeremiah or Pastor Isaiah or anybody else that stands here, there's a burden that comes with sharing what's in God's Word because our desire, like God's desire, is to see change in the lives of people. And Malachi is no different. He steps into this role and shares. And we learn about this right at the beginning. See, the opening declarations of most of the prophecy books in the Old Testament start with this, the word of the Lord or the oracle of the word of the Lord. And really what it means is this prophet, this messenger is going to come and he's going to share something from the heart of God to the people. And they need to listen. It would be as if somebody came up and said, I have this great burden that I must share and I want you to have open ears and an open heart. And the reality is when I stand up here on Sunday morning, I want the same thing. I want our folks to be open in their minds and open in their heart to whatever God has for them. And when that is pushed back on, it is exactly the same as what happens in the day of Malachi or Isaiah or Jeremiah. Not these guys, but the other guys. Um, pick one. Same thing. Want to see God do a work in the lives of people. And so Malachi 1.1 starts out, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The word, the word oracle really means a burden or a weight. It was, it was something that, that this messenger and Malachi, the, the word, the title or the name Malachi means messenger. And we really don't know if it was a proper person or a title, but is messenger. And so it's a messenger to the people of Israel with a word or a burden for them to hear. And so as, as Malachi is going to share this, we're going to learn some things. And what we're going to do is we're going to step back a little bit in your Old Testament to a book that you're very familiar with because Malachi is written in the setting that is about halfway back in your Old Testament. And so the setting is around 433 BC um, during the reign of Artaxerxes, probably written at a time when Nehemiah, after building the wall, had gone back to Persia and before he came back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, that's when Malachi would have written this. And so we get the idea that the wall is built. And you remember the celebration that went with the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. I mean, they were all gung-ho about following God and being all on God's side. And they make statements. And if you turn back to Nehemiah chapter 10, starting at verse 30, you can see some of these statements. 10 verse 30. 
says, we will not, in verse, verse 8, it says, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And then in verse 32, we also place ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Verse 34, likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests and Levites. All these things in, in Nehemiah chapter 10, all these things that they commit to. It's a long list. And what they're saying is, this is our commitment. This is what we pledge to do from now on, from this point on. And you remember what got them in the situation where the walls around Jerusalem were burnt down or the gates were burned and the walls were broken down. You remember what got them in that? They were sent off because they had disobeyed God. And they come back and they rebuild the walls and they make this commitment because they're refreshing their lives before God. They're saying, we're committed to this. And from now on, we're going to live in a way that will please God. And so this happens. And then in verse, in Nehemiah 12, 43, it says, And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children re rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. That's a big statement. Because really what it means is we were so joyous in following God at this point because that work was done. We've made our commitments. We are celebrating together. We're going to have a Thanksgiving meal together. And we're going to celebrate what God has done. And everybody around us is going to understand it. They're going to know that we're committed. And so... We get to this place in between chapter 12 and chapter 13 where Nehemiah goes back and in chapter 13, he returns. And it is a different picture. And so Malachi is right in the middle of this and this is what Malachi is writing to. And so they start to drift. And in, verse, in chapter 13, what we read about is what Nehemiah returns to. And so if you look at that, it says that he returned from the land. And, and in verse 23, it says, In those days I also saw the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod and, Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them. And listen to what Nehemiah does. Now I'm not threatening Okay, but listen to what he does. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. All right. Is Nehemiah serious about this? He is certainly serious about it. In fact, he's, he's a little perturbed. You can throw all kinds of words in there, but he is not happy. And he made and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Nehemiah is put out. You remember, Nehemiah went to all this work to re help rebuild the walls and the gates and got them on path where they were following God. And in a very short order, they start to abandon God. And when Nehemiah returns, he said, what happened? 
All I did was walk away for a little while. Does that not sound familiar with the nation of Israel? Did Moses, when he went up on the mountain to spend some time with God, and he returned, you remember what he found? They fashioned a golden calf. It wasn't real long. It doesn't take long for people to drift from God even after the commitments. And here we see that. Their commitments have been forsaken. They had drifted away in disobedience. And they began to do other things. In fact, they, they really kind of just moved away from that whole idea that the Lord is my shepherd. They went and said, hey, there's other things that are doing just as good a job as God. And they started to move away from God. So Malachi addresses the people, the nation, with this oracle. And it's a, a dialogue of eight sarcastic questions that could actually be used to describe the culture now. And this is what it says in verse 2. Verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now we declare God's love for us all the time, don't we? God loves me. God loves me. He saved me. He loves me. But I would say the nation of Israel would say the same thing. They would say that on the outside. But then you go to the inside and you say, says something completely different. So the first thing I want us to understand is that God declares his love. God declares his love. God makes a statement. I have loved you, says the Lord. And then this sarcastic rebuttal, how have you loved us? And really, he's at, they're asking how. And they're not asking it by, by outwardly speaking, how have you loved us? They're, they're really saying, where is the evidence? And on the inside, these things are taking place in the life of the people of Israel. And it's coming out in their actions. And so he said, where is the evidence of your love, God? Or you could even ask it this way. How have you loved us as opposed to other things loving us? Or how have you loved us and, and not loved anybody else? So there's all kinds of ways to ask this question. How have you loved us? And what they're asking is, God, can you prove your love to us? What is the evidence? And is, is this not the question of skeptics? When, when somebody asks this question... If God allows this to take place, if God allows this disaster or this murder or, or this tornado to come through or hurricane or whatever it happens to be, do they not ask, where was God? It's that same, same idea. It was really the impetus for Mary and Martha when Jesus came to Bethany. Remember, he was just a little late for Lazarus and Lazarus was in the tomb and they went out to meet to meet Jesus and ask Jesus, where were you? If you had been here, this would not have happened. And so they're asking the same question. Show us evidence of your love. If you're going to show up late, I don't even believe you love me. And there, here we see it hourly, but do we not ask the same question on the inside? We go through different things. Are you really showing love to me, God? If I'm going through this trial, are you really there? Do you really care? Another way we could even look at this is 
what should we expect from God? And we sometimes treat God as if he is an employee. I mean, that may sound harsh, but we have some standards, don't we? When we look at God, we look at his word, we say, God, you ought to bless, you ought to be doing these things, and when you don't do that, we treat you as if you didn't measure up to our standards. That's really not the way God works. God is not bound by our standards. In fact, he blesses us beyond what we deserve. The truth is we deserve the punishment for our sin. We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. And yet God blesses us beyond measure just in salvation. We treat him as if he's an employee. I want to look at the progression of rebellion. And, and what you have in your, in your handout, um, what we're going to do is we're actually going to fill that in in reverse order. So if you're looking at it and you go, well, that's not the way it says it on my paper. I know. Work from the bottom up. Okay? First thing is, uh, we, we, first thing we do is we, we say love is found elsewhere. I mean, probably the easiest place to see this, and, and we see it in this scripture where they intermarry with people that they're not supposed to marry we, we see it in, in our culture if you go back to the boomer generation and start looking for love in places other than in God. And so we look for love elsewhere. And then we get to the, the me-centered part of that, the, the materialism, where we say there are a lot of things that can bring me satisfaction. And so we look at it and we say, love, God disappoints, and these other things will fulfill me. They will not disappoint. And then the third piece of that progression is that God just doesn't measure up. And it's a dangerous pro- progression. If you look at the nation, what, that's basically all they did. Is they started drifting away from God to the place where God was replaced. And Nehemiah comes back in and he says, this is not right. Malachi says, this is not right. You, God says he loves you. And you're saying by your attitude and your actions, how have you loved us? With a little snarl, how have you loved us? Jean-Paul Sartre in his work, Existentialism and Human Emotion, writes, man is the being whose project is to be God. It's an interesting statement when you break it down. It's just that idea that I know how to be God better than God knows how to be God. Romans 1, 21 through 23 kind of gives a different picture says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It's a replacement. And they say, well, wait a minute. I have not built this image of some four-footed creature or some animal that I'm bowing down to worship. That hasn't happened in my house. I'm good. You know, when I when I went to Malaysia, we were in a Baptist camp. And a Baptist camp is a really safe place to be in Malaysia. 
So we were there and we would eat supper. And when we'd finish supper, we'd sit around and we would talk. And just over the fence was a, a girl that came out every evening to her altar. And it was not an altar made to the God that we understand is the God of the Bible. It was to another God. And she would spend time there. And we'd just watch. Couldn't say anything. Couldn't do anything. Realizing that, that she had placed her trust in something that was, that was temporary. That was small. That was smaller than her. When we place our trust in anything smaller than the living God of Scripture, we place our trust in something that is not trustworthy and will not save us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Man, what a promise. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't have to, but he did. And then it talks about the love of God in Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. God's love may look different than our expectations. Second thing. As God distinguishes between Jacob and Esau. Look at, look at verse 2, the second part of verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountain, mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. You say, man, that is harsh, dude. That is harsh, God. Why would you do that? In fact, you're, you're supposed to be a loving God. Why would you even say the word hate? Well, Malachi, when he's, when he's writing this, and we understand the context of this, we go back and look at the, these two brothers that were always in competition, that Jacob was the one who stole a birthright or got the birthright from Esau over a bowl of stew. And then with the help of his mom, kind of deceived dad in, in getting the blessing. And we say, well, that's not very fair. And, we, and Malachi is not really making a statement about, the, about, the, about his love for either one of those guys per se. What he's saying is, this is my preference. This is, this is who I've blessed. I have blessed Jacob. And the heart of Esau is not where the heart of Esau ought to be. If you, if you look back at the story, at the end of that is Esau moves way away from God. His heart was not there to please God. He was in rebellion and had never turned to God. And God recognized Jacob's heart for him. And so when we read this, we, we kind of look at it and, and we don't need to, to, to look at this and go, God's just not right. We have to understand that God is sovereign. And God can do what He wants. The concept of His sovereignty need not be taken away from Him. And God blesses Jacob, blesses the nation of Israel. Esau becomes Edom and, and is essentially a group of people that is in rebellion to God from then on. 
Malachi is writing this and making this distinction of who is favored. Israel is favored. The third piece of this in verse 4, God determines His will. Verse 4 says, Though Edom, and that's the same as Esau, we have been beaten down. Now listen to this. We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Do you hear what's going on in that? Do you hear the statement of Edom in that? Do you hear the arrogance in it? Oh, it's torn down, but we're going to rebuild and we'll show you, God. We'll show you who we are and what we're about. That's, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's an arrogance and a pride. Uh, I, I know that you've likely had this occur. If if you've spent any time at the beach, especially around little ones, whether you did it or you watched somebody else do it, you'd watch people build sandcastles. And you can build it and you can have great dreams for your sand sandcastles. But you don't have control over it. You're not sovereign over that sandcastle. That wave's going to come in, it's going to knock it down. If it's not that, it's going to be rain. And, and in that, what Edom is doing is say, we will rebuild. And God says, I will take care of that. You will not. You see, arrogance provokes God's anger. And pride seeks personal glory. It is not set up to bring glory to God. Verse 5. Your eyes will see this. What? The, the difference between Edom or Esau and Jacob, your difference, you will see the difference between this blessing and this cursing. And you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Fourth thing I want us to understand is that God deserves the praise of his glory. And so what are they going to see? They're going to see both prospering and devastation. The Lord be magnified to, to grow in greatness, to make his name famous. Now it has become big news over the last couple weeks about Kanye West. You go, I don't know if I believe any of that. I think maybe he's just a stage show putting up a front so that he can get a different kind of audience from what he's had before. I don't know. I can't answer for the man's heart. What I see him doing is bringing some kind of attention to the name of Jesus and declaring him as king. I got no problem with Kanye doing that. In fact, it'd be okay if we did it. We don't have the platform that he does. And so I would applaud that. And at the same time, I would say, along with others that have said this, pray for him. Because he's walking out of a lifestyle that didn't please God into a lifestyle where he's trying to please God. And you know Satan hates that. And so pray for him. Pray for the Justin Biebers who are up there leading worship in places and others that seem to have platforms and voices that we will never have. And being able to declare Jesus is the Son of God and on him you can be saved. So pray for those guys. You know, it's, it's the, the idea that God needs, 
and deserves the praise of His glory. He deserves that. And I pray that these guys, that their lives would be rooted in Scripture and they would be solid in their faith. It's likely that they may lose their platform as they become more committed to Christ because they will be ostracized by the culture that is moving away from God. So pray for them. In this verse, your eyes will see this and you will say the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Have you ever seen one of those mirrors? You may have it in your, in your restroom at home. And um, it's a mirror that you have. Sometimes they're attached to a wall. Sometimes they're separate. But one side, it's just the normal mirror. Um, if you flip it or turn it around, it magnifies. You've seen those or had one of those? That's the idea in this right here. Is when, when we look at ourselves in a mirror like that and we go to the magnification part, what are we looking for? We're looking for flaws, aren't we? Now, unless you're just a narcissist and you get before that mirror and say, I just like me. Flip this over and, man, I'm looking good, even big. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's it. But, but a lot of times we're looking for flaws that we can fix, aren't we? Say, well, there's, there's a little spot. I need to put something there. Or, um, you know, I need to get that, whatever that is between my teeth, I need to get that out. Whatever it happens to be. And so we use that mirror so we can see better. When we look at, at verse 5 in Malachi 1, what, what is happening here is this idea that God is magnified. And as God is magnified, what we see is the love of God magnified. We see the character of God magnified. We allow him to, to get bigger. And so I want to ask you this question. What or who is being magnified in your life? What's being magnified in your life? Is it God? And some of us are going to maybe have to take a step back because we may be working for God. We may be doing all the right things. We may be showing up at church. We may be giving. We may be doing all those pieces, but it's really not for God. So what is being magnified in your life? Or who is being magnified in your life? As we journey through these, through these eight questions over the next several weeks and start looking at pieces of Malachi's oracle or his burden, the weight we will get to ask the question, what is the condition of our heart? And today, the question is, what is the condition of your heart? Who's being magnified? Is it you? Is it something you're doing? Or is it really God? What's the condition of your heart? So what do we do with this? How do, how do we respond to this? The first thing is that we need to acknowledge our limitations. Acknowledge our limitations. The, the truth is that we are dead in sin before Christ. We're dead in sin. Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, 
We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were dead. You know, when, when we go through and talk about baptism, and like Allura and I talked earlier today, when we were talking about baptism, we were talking about being dead to self and being dead to sin. And that's what Paul is writing here to the Ephesian church. He says, this is how you used to be. And then Paul's going to turn it around and say, in Christ, this is what you are. So we are dead in our sin. We are in need of rescue. And we are unable to provide for our own salvation. But, but listen, to, listen to this. When we were unattractive and offensive, God gave His Son to become unattractive and offensive. You know, Jesus wasn't ugly. Not in heaven. He's the Son of God. A beauty that is beyond measure. And came to this earth and took the form of a servant, a bondservant, going to the point of death on a cross for us. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. That's not somebody you just go, man, I love your looks. I'm hanging out with you. You're a a star. No. Romans 9.33 says that he was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See, when we take action and start talking about acknowledging our limitations, we acknowledge that we can't save ourselves and we need the one who came for us in the form of a bondservant. The second thing we can do is not just understand or acknowledge our limitations, but to apply His presence. This is what it says in verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4. It says, But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Does that not sound like the picture that we talk about with baptism? To be made, made alive together with Christ Death has no hold or power, and neither does sin. In Him we have redemption. It's been purchased for us. And through Christ and through the the work of the Holy Spirit, we are sanctified or matured in our faith. So today is a day, if you've never accepted Christ, you can move from being apart from God to being part of His family. This is what it says in Romans 9, 25 and 26, and it's a quote from the prophet Hosea. It says, and he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. What a declaration. 
to be an enemy of God and brought into the family of God is a big deal. And today, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you can do that. And it's very simple. It's very big, but it's very simple. It means that you admit that you're a sinner and you can't save yourself. It's that acknowledging your limitation. You're dead in sin. And you need forgiveness and you're willing to turn from that sin, ask God for forgiveness and follow him. Allow him to be the boss of your life. And in doing that, you say, God, I want you to be in control. And we do that when we, we pray a prayer, but it's, it's a prayer that starts a relationship that goes further as, as you grow in your friendship and love and understanding of who God is and what he has done in your life and what he does in your life. So today, if you've never accepted Christ, I want to invite you to do that. We're going to pray. And then I want to read a, a, a quote because it kind of reveals, might reveal something about our heart. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service.